The following audio content is a talk given at the Inn, a college ministry of University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, theinnseattle.org. Hello, I am so thankful to be in front of you guys. Um, I don't know if you guys know, but I'm leaving Seattle in two days to travel across the country, and I won't be coming back for at least three years, but probably just three years. Um, so I'm excited to spend one of my last nights with you all, and I'm thankful for the familiar faces. I love this community, so thank you for being here. Um, I have the privilege tonight of talking about Peter, which is exciting for me because I think the jury is still out on this, but I think Peter is the disciple who identifies as an ENFP in the Myers-Briggs. We argued a little bit about it in the office. Janie's not sure about the P or the J, but um, I think he identifies as that because the guy is hilarious. I mean, he always wants to be around people. There's one passage in scripture when he wakes up and realizes that Jesus isn't there, and he's like, how do I get to Jesus? And I love that, because that's, I relate to that so much. Um, he has a sense of humor. He puts his foot in his mouth all the time. Um, he's really unqualified for the job, but Jesus chooses him and gets closest to him. Um, well, Peter and two others. He's one of the closest disciples to Jesus. So this summer, we get to hear many stories around the experience of Peter, a disciple of Jesus, and we will specifically be focusing on his interactions with Jesus so that we can learn about Jesus as a teacher and we can learn about what it means to have an intimate relationship with Jesus because Peter, of all people, had that. Tonight, though, we will be looking primarily at the Gospel of Mark, at one of the earliest accounts of Peter's life in Scripture. And Mark is thought to be the first written Gospel, first of all, and some scholars think that Mark, or John Mark, the author, um, was an interpreter of Peter, so he would have been very close to him, and he would have known sort of his personal experience with Jesus, which I think is pretty cool. And we won't spend any time really picking apart the authorship of Mark, but what I want you to catch as we look at the scripture is the simplicity of the text. When you read Mark next to the other gospels, he is able to say in fewer words things about Jesus to portray Jesus as a powerful figure um, to portray his authority as a prophet, teacher, and miracle worker. So as we begin the story of Peter um, in Mark chapter 1, we have just passed Peter being baptized by John the Baptist and going into the wilderness and being tempted by Satan. And we will pick up in Mark chapter 1, verses 16 through 20. As Jesus passed along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon, which is Peter, and his brother Andrew casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fish for people. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. As he went a little farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, who were in their boat mending their nets. Immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. So after some pretty major events in Jesus' life, his baptism, his season in the wilderness, he decides to begin his ministry to people. God becomes a person to minister to people, which I think is pretty incredible. But what is even more incredible to me is that God would invite people into his ministry to people because he probably knows that they're going to screw it up, but he invites them into it anyways. Um, and you would think that as Jesus begins his ministry and looks for the first people he wants to call, that he would look for the most qualified, maybe the smartest, uh, maybe the wealthiest, maybe the most charismatic, who knows. 
So he goes, of course, to the fishing dock, which I think is hilarious. Um, and he calls a group of guys that are fishing with their dad, Peter and Andrew, his brother, as well as James and John. Jesus doesn't call just one person. He calls a group of people together, people that probably knew one another pretty well because they may have been working together for a while and their dads may have been working together. Um, he calls them together to drop their nets and follow him, which this is kind of confusing. Why would four men drop their nets, leave their livelihoods behind, and follow a stranger? What we do know about them, I mean, this is the only thing we really know at this point, is that they are fishermen, which means that they were not uh, disciples of a rabbi, because in Jewish culture, you would go to school, you would go to the synagogue at the age of six, and you would begin to study the Torah, which is the first five books of the Bible. And you would study the Torah, you would memorize the Torah until about the age of 10. And at that age, you would either drop out of school and learn the trade of your father, or you would continue on and learn the entire Hebrew Bible, all books. Um, and the best of the best, after learning the entire Hebrew Bible, would ask a rabbi, like apply to a rabbi, to follow this rabbi, this Jewish rabbi, and learn under him, follow him around and do everything that he does. But the rabbi would only choose the best of the best. So what we know about Peter, James, John, and Andrew is that they weren't the best of the best. They were just fishermen. They were normal people because they hadn't been chosen. So Jesus approaches them, and he calls out to them, come follow me. Jesus is probably a well-known Jewish rabbi, and he looks at these nobodies and says, come follow me. So to them, what Jesus is saying is, I believe in you. I think you could do what I do. I think you could be like me, which is pretty incredible that Jesus chooses Peter, Andrew, James, and John because his ministry is for everyone. He uses normal people to do the impossible by the power of the Spirit. And not only does Jesus call the Joe Schmoes of the day, but he invites them right away to follow him closely. He takes them immediately to the synagogue. They probably still smell like fish. There's no time um, in between Jesus calling them and them following him. And we will pick up in Mark chapter 1, verses 21 through 22. They went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, he entered the synagogue and taught. They were astounded at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. So after he invites the disciples to follow him together, he takes them to the synagogue where he's teaching, where he's healing, where he casts out a demon. And they're amazed at the way that he's teaching. Um, and it's evident, Mark makes it evident, that the disciples see something different in the way that Jesus teaches than the other religious teachers or leaders that they followed. And I love verse 27, which says, they were all amazed and they kept on asking one another, what is this? What is this? I love this picture of community, seeing the works of God and asking one another, what is this? I mean, Brenna and I ask this all the time. <laughs> we sit in the car outside of my house for hours <laughs> saying, what is this? Um, Jesus invites us to be curious with one another, confused with one another, definitely, and in awe of his goodness with one another. The disciples have zero idea what they're doing, but God brings them together to figure it out. And in his invitation, he does not disappoint. He teaches with authority, and he heals with power. And at the end of the day, the disciples want to follow him. So the disciples drop their nets and follow Jesus to the synagogue. 
They see him teach. They see him perform miracles. And at this point, they may have an inkling of what it may look like to follow him as a disciple, um, the tiniest, most narrow idea of what this would be like. And they trust him. They are in awe of him, and they trust him. And because of that, they are willing to follow Jesus wherever he will lead them. Now this is the part of the story that I want to hone in on tonight. Where will Jesus lead the disciples? And in this specific gospel, Jesus does something that I think is truly unique before he embarks on an incredible missionary journey with the first disciples throughout the Middle East. It says in verse 29, As soon as they left the synagogue, they entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever, and they told him about her at once. He came and took her by the hand and lifted her up. Then the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or possessed with demons, and the whole city was gathered around the door. And he cured many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. So this story surprises me because it's one of the first miracles in Mark's account, and I'm thinking, where will Jesus go next after he leaves leaves the synagogue? Which crowd will he teach? Will he feed thousands? What kind of trouble is he going to get into? Who is he going to upset? But Mark says, as soon as Jesus and the four disciples left the synagogue, they entered the house of Simon Peter and Andrew. Peter's mother-in-law is sick with a fever, and they tell Jesus at once, So what we get from this is that Peter is married, and he has already agreed to follow Jesus, to leave his wife and his family and his livelihood behind, to follow Jesus because he trusts him and he is in awe of him. We also see in this story that Jesus took the time to care for Peter's family that he plans to leave. Before taking Peter with just the shoes on his feet and the clothes on his back to the next stop, he takes him back to Peter's house. There are three things that I love about this story. First of all, we're dealing with Peter's mother-in-law, and when we think about mother-in-laws in in our current context, our culture, I think of this picture, or this, oh, it's not up, it's pretty large, so I don't know if you guys have seen this movie, Monster-in-Law, but Jane Fonda's incredible and pretty scary. And when I think of mother-in-laws, I don't have one. I mean, some of you maybe have dated before and understand what that's like. But I think that oftentimes they're portrayed as the most difficult person to deal with. And I don't know if this is the case for Peter. I mean, the nuclear family is something that is a modern concept. So in Peter's time, it would have been common to live in a household with your immediate family, your in-laws, maybe even friends. And I'm sure that Peter had a deep respect for his mother-in-law, and I don't mean to say otherwise. But when I think about a mother-in-law, I think about the most difficult person in the family. Um, And I appreciate in this story that it's Peter's mother-in-law that Jesus reaches and heals, because the mother-in-law to me is symbolic of a difficult person. Yet Peter told Jesus about her. He wants Jesus to reach her, to touch her. And when Jesus heals her, she begins to serve him. And I ask myself, who is the most difficult person in my family Do I trust that they are not out of Jesus' reach? And do I believe that they could actually serve Jesus with their lives? The second thing that I appreciate in this story is the gentleness with which Jesus approaches Peter's mother-in-law. 
Verses before, he's in the synagogue rebuking spirits, and there's convulsing and crying out. But in this miracle, Jesus simply takes her by the hand and lifts her out of the bed. In a similar story later in the Gospels, Jesus meets a 12-year-old, and he takes her by the hand and says, little girl, get up with such gentleness. But in this particular story, Jesus is holding a grown woman by the hand. And let's just play along and say that this woman is difficult and grouchy um, and really terrible. But Jesus treats her with such gentleness and lifts her up out of the bed. She's completely healed. And in that moment, she's able to see Jesus for who he truly is, like Peter and the disciples saw Jesus in the synagogue. And she may be thinking, what is this? What is this power? What is this kindness, this gentleness? I've never seen anything like this in all the other religious leaders I've met. She's in awe of her healer, and she has no choice but to follow him, to trust him. So she serves him. The third piece of this story that I don't want us to miss is her response to Jesus' healing. She begins to serve Jesus. The sun hasn't even set, and Peter's house has broken out in some sort of revival. The entire neighborhood, um, people from across the city are at the doorstep, and Jesus is literally healing people from from Peter's doorstep. And all of Peter's household, his wife, his brothers and sisters, his mother-in-law, his father, are witnessing the glory, the power, the gentleness, and the humanity of God in their home. And thanks to Jesus, their home becomes a place where all the sick will gather. I like to imagine that after the story, Mark doesn't write this, but when Jesus takes the disciples and leaves Peter's house, I'm sure there were people who didn't make it in time. There were people who were too slow, who wanted to come for healing, people whose family drugged them on mats, but couldn't make it in time to meet Jesus, the healer. And in that moment, Jesus is, I mean, Peter's mother-in-law and all the people who saw his glory and his healing would have the opportunity to care for them because Jesus touched them. He took the time to go to Peter's house um, to heal a family. Jesus starts in the household. He starts in our neighborhoods. He cares about Peter's family, and he cares about our families too. And the reason that the story of the beginning of Peter's life as a disciple resonates with me is because it looks so vastly different from the beginning of my life as a disciple or a follower of Jesus. When I was in high school and I began to take my relationship with Jesus seriously, I checked it at the door when I came home to my family. I had seen the power and the love of God in the community that I met at my youth group, similarly to the ways that Jesus showed his power and authority to the disciples in the synagogue. But I had selfishly held on to that love for myself. Um, And I remember coming home from church retreats and thinking, my parents can never understand this, and just being so angry that I couldn't communicate the things that I was experiencing to them. So I'm struck by this story because it demonstrates to me the kindness of Jesus. How kind of Jesus to show Peter's family a glimpse of the things that Peter would see as he followed Jesus for years. How thoughtful of God to level the playing field so that when Peter returned to his family, they would embrace him with joy and they would be able to mutually encourage one another. When I told my parents that I wanted to study religious studies in college, my mom asked me if I was drunk. That's her true story. Um, and when I told them, <laughs> Rachel might have been there. Uh, when I told them that I wanted to go in ministry, my dad assumed that I was going to become a priest. That was the only thing that he really knew of ministry. And I desperately wanted for my family to understand the depth of the community that God had called me into, how it had shaped me into a more thoughtful, 
a more compassionate and even a more fun person. So when I decided to move to Seattle, I didn't think twice about being far from my family. I just resolved that I was one of the people, like the disciples, who Jesus would call away from their family and to other people. I always thought that Jesus' take on family was something like his statement in Matthew 8 when a scribe asks if he can first bury his father before following Jesus. And Jesus replies, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. This made sense to me because Jesus was calling me to follow him and forget about my parents because they can take care of themselves. They're adults, right? Jesus' command to let the dead bury their own dead is important. What he's saying to the scribe, though, is that Jesus must come first. To follow Jesus, you must be willing to leave behind all else. You must be willing to rid yourself of distractions and follow God wherever God may lead you. But my interpretation of that scripture was terribly wrong. And my willingness, so to speak, to leave behind my family, um, not to face our broken relationship or concern myself with their needs was not at all a reflection of the character of God. It was a reflection of my fear, my impatience, my doubt that God is big enough to do the seemingly impossible through me. I wish that I could tell you tonight that everything has changed and that my parents and I talk on the phone weekly or that they know your names. They know that the, the relationship that we have, um, that they go to church and that they're thriving in a small group community with people who encourage them. But that is not the case. What has changed, though, is that I have, as I have dropped my net, so to speak, and as I have begun to follow Jesus into the unknown, um, with a willing heart and an open mind, he led me, just like Peter, back to my family, who are thousand, thousands of miles away. This year was the very first time in my life, and I'm not proud to admit, that I prayed for my family regularly, and that I hoped that maybe God would change my family's lives. Maybe they would be able to understand that God loves them. Just this month, I talked to my brother on the phone for the first time, which is also something I'm not proud to admit. I didn't even have his number when he called because he changed it in January. Also, last month, my mom asked me if when I come home this summer, I could talk to her and a friend from work about some questions they have about the Bible. My brother said he trusts me. My mom said she's proud of me. My entire family after this year has a better idea of what my life as a minister looks like. They know that I don't wear robes, um, even though there's some pictures online, and so they were curious. Um, they know that I spend a lot of time with college students, and they know that I'm having a lot of fun. So I can assure you that at no point I decided to be a better person, but it was by the power of the Spirit and God's desire to make me a willing disciple that I was able to hope for my family for the very first time. Jesus' ministry is for everyone. It's for the strangers we meet in our classes and on the bus, and it's also for the people who named us. It's for the people who have known us from the very beginning. Jesus is the only human being who ever chose to be born into his family. And not only was it his choice to be born of a teenage virgin in Bethlehem, but it was also his joy, choice to be born into humanity, to know us as brothers and sisters. God chose to enter into our dysfunctional existence. Jesus lived an incredible and a difficult life on earth, and he knows our joy, he knows our pain, and he knows our annoyances. Jesus was always annoyed with the disciples. I'm encouraged by that. 
What is significant about Jesus's interaction with Peter and the other disciples in the first chapter of Mark is this. He calls them to follow him just the way they are. Jesus teaches the disciples to go out with a willing spirit and to come home with compassion and with concern. I don't know if you guys have listened to the new Chance the Rapper mixtape as many times as Thurt has. Um, I have a few times, but and Church has as well. <laughs> Talk to him about it later. But there is one particular line that I just cannot get away from. It's from the song Blessings, and it says, Jesus' black life don't matter. I know I talked to his daddy. He said, you the man of the house now. Look out for your family. Without butchering Chance's honest and deeply moving words, I want to explain to you why this matters to me. First of all, Chance is pointing to the fact that Jesus was physically not white, um, and he did not come from a place of privilege. He's pointing to the black experience, the Black Lives Matter movement, and the presence of Jesus in a movement for as a sufferer and an advocate of justice. But secondly, and what I want to speak to tonight, is how Chance describes a conversation that he had with God, in which God speaks to Chance and gives him the responsibility to take care of his daughter and to take care of the mother of his daughter. I was talking to our friend Emma Mitsui earlier this week about this line, and she said, I think that's what God is saying to us, to all Christians in our time on earth. Jesus calling the disciples and trusting them despite their flaws, taking them with him on this journey and leading them back to their families is such a beautiful picture of God's words to chance. You're the man of the house now. Look out for your family. When Jesus calls the first disciples, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, he's preparing them for this commission to look out for their own families and to care for the family of God. Jesus picks out a team of terribly unqualified individuals to follow him, to learn from his love and his leadership, and to continue building his kingdom after he goes to the cross. The disciples follow Jesus willingly because they trust him. We follow Jesus willingly because we can trust him. And God, for reasons that I cannot understand, entrusts us with a call because he trusts us to follow him willingly. Because of Jesus' victory, we can't really mess that up. Thank God that in my impatience, my stubbornness, my selfishness, and my inability to love, God is still working in God's grace through me to look out for the family that I belong to. To close, I want to thank all of you for embracing me as your family this year. To my host family in the back for embracing me as family. And I can't tell you how much um, I appreciate the moments when I've looked inward at this community. And I've been amazed by the glory of God and have thought, what is this? What is this? So if you guys could stand and hold hands, it's no secret that the worship team will probably come up while we're standing. Um, and I'll pray for us. God, I thank you for this community, for this family that you've called to yourself to follow you, to drop all things. But I thank you that as we hold one another's hands, um, that our hands are not empty. We have one another. And you have given us a beautiful call. You trust us, God. And I pray that we, by your grace, will trust you. God, thank you for these people. I love them so much. And I pray that you bless them as they look forward to their summer, as they look forward um, to the call 
that you have put on their lives. In Jesus' name.